0: about the Supreme Court by Law 360. I'm Natalie Rodriguez and joining me is Supreme Court reporter Jimmy Hoover. Hey Jimmy, how's it going?
1: It's going pretty well. Um, It's a busy week at the Supreme Court. Uh, Just a couple hours ago on Thursday before we recorded, we got the uh, response briefs from Texas in the basically round two of Supreme Court litigation over the state's six-week abortion ban. Now, um, obviously, we've talked about before how over the summer, the Supreme Court refused to act on a request from abortion providers to block the six-week ban from taking effect. So it has been in effect for almost two months now, um, causing what abortion providers say is a basically a mad rush of uh, pregnant women seeking to terminate their pregnancies after six weeks of pregnancy to leave the state and obtain those abortions elsewhere, which is said to be causing Backlogs in those other states. So, just a bit of context about what's happening now is that the Department of Justice is actually asking the Supreme Court to once again intervene and block the law. They say it is unconstitutional that Texas has effectively nullified Roe versus Wade. But what makes this case pretty interesting is kind of the procedural posture that we're in. So, just a little bit more background here. A uh, Texas federal judge imposed a preliminary injunction that did have the effect of blocking the law, but that injunction was stayed or lifted by a Fifth Circuit panel. Now, the DOJ is back before the Supreme Court seeking to lift that stay and have the Supreme Court effectively once again impose the injunction blocking the law. Now, we just got the responses from Texas, which says that the DOJ basically has no standing to bring this lawsuit against the state of Texas for its um, six-week abortion ban, also known as uh, Senate Bill 8. Um, And Texas says that basically there's not an adversarial issue here on which the Department of Justice can sue. They're basically just trying to enforce some constitutional rulings of the Supreme Court, but they say that that's not exactly what the court system was designed to handle. So just a little bit of um, kind of an explainer of what's going on in the Texas abortion case. Now, we could get a ruling from the Supreme Court on whether or not to block the law in the coming hours, days. The, the case will be probably fully briefed by the time the DOJ files its, its reply to, the, to Texas's response. But you could potentially see something, you know, tonight, tomorrow night, or potentially sometime next week. But something we're definitely watching.
0: Yeah, we'll hopefully have some updates on that um, in an upcoming episode. In an update from something that we spoke about last episode, uh, we wanted to discuss the report, the draft report that came out of the Supreme Court Commission uh, on on Friday. Thursday night, I believe, actually, and they, they, they held a, a public meeting discussion on it on Friday. Uh, big takeaways from this, you know, more than like approximately 200 page draft discussion materials was uh, packing the court seems to be dead in the water. <laughs> the commission <laughs> does not seem to be, um, you know, backing that one I- in any significant way, um, although term limits on justices seem to be, you know, in the mix here in terms of discussion. Uh, Jimmy, any anything else that the, you kind of uh, uh, took away from, from that discussion?
1: I mean, I think you pretty much just hit it, uh, that uh, the, the draft discussion materials, as they've been labeled, which is kind of the preliminary, but not quite a final report. It's subject to some edits and clarifications and modifications and things of that nature. But yeah, you're right. It, it, it criticized heavily this idea of expanding the court to essentially... N- give Biden the opportunity to nullify the Supreme Court's current conservative supermajority. And it said that that strategy brings considerable risks, among them a continuous cycle of expansion that could lead to, get this, Natalie, something like 60 to 70 justices on the Supreme Court. Now, I, that would really make podcasting a little bit difficult, having to figure out who's talking at any particular time but that is seems to be what the at least these draft discussion materials were warning about now I, th- I should I should say one caveat here is that in their meeting on Friday in which the commission was completely divided over the contents of this report by the way they clarified that it is not the commission speaking it is the working groups that have been assigned um, to come up with these draft discussion materials basically putting together their first, Um, product, but not a final one. And it's subject to obviously the deliberation of the whole commission. So I listened to the Friday hearing. And like I said, there was pretty broad disagreement here. Um, As you can expect, um, this is a commission that is made up of, you know, uh, legal scholars across the ideological spectrum. And so some of and, and not just legal scholars, but also legal figures. But the more liberal ones obviously took exception to this Draft report that is condemning the idea that they have been effectively rallying around for you know months, if not years now, um, in light of the Republican hardball tactics surrounding the Supreme Court. And here we have a clip actually from Sherilyn Eiffel of the NAACP Legal Defense and Education Fund in which she is criticizing the report's kind of characterization of the topic of court expansion. There are many reasons why uh, one might support the idea of expanding the court um, that don't have to do with uh, your being, you know, beholden to a particular partisan agenda or another. And to the extent that this report frames uh, the entire discussion that way, I think it does a disservice and actually silences what are um, the arguments that I think might be raised by uh, people who are operating in that space of thinking about democracy respect for and respect for the rule of law. But that's not to say that the conservative legal scholars on the commission were necessarily happy with what they saw in the report. Here's a clip actually from a University of Chicago Law School professor, William Bode, who says the draft discussion materials actually of go too far in even entertaining the idea of court expansion
2: now i do also worry about the draft discussion about the prudence efficacy and consequences of changing the size of the court um and i do appreciate that the draft uh acknowledges a lot of the arguments against changing the size of the court and uh, i'm very glad it doesn't uh do less of that i'm very glad it doesn't do more in sort of suggesting that there's any reason to change the size of the court but i do really worry that even giving as much uh, oxygen as we do, as seriously as we do to the arguments for um, substantive court packing, uh, is is dangerous and wrong.
1: So I don't know, Natalie, this sounds kind of like committee death for the whole topic of Supreme Court reform when you have such disparate views on the issue, and it kind of raises the question of what this commission is even going to do in the first place, right?
0: Well, yeah, it sounds like no one's happy, right, on either side. Although, I guess if no one's happy, right, ultimately there's some sort of like compromise. I <laughs> like, I see. guess that's, that's the to, goal that with this. Um, although, you know, yeah, it's hard to see exactly what will come of all this. I, I think it's always great to have a bunch of intelligent people, you know, in a room debating like an issue. But you know, in a Zoom room, in a Zoom room. <laughs> but you know. Well, obviously, just keep looking at this uh, and, and keep, you know, on top of what does come out of the commission. I I, I believe the report uh, is due in mid-November. So hopefully uh, we'll we'll have some more light shined on, on that then. So that's kind of the big news of the week. Um, obviously, there are no arguments this week, but they did have two significant rulings on qualified immunity for um, you know, qualified immunity is something we've, I know, talked about in the past. It's reached the Supreme Court several times over the last year or so. Um, you know, most often justices have sided with law enforcement on this issue. And that was no different on Monday when the justice overturned two circuit courts and granted the protection to several officers involved in these instances. So we want to just, you know, kind of dig a little deeper into this topic.
1: That's right. One of the cases decided Monday involved a 2016 incident in which California police officers responded to a 911 call from a child saying she and her mother were barricaded in a bathroom to protect themselves from her mother's boyfriend, who she said was trying to saw his way through the door. So the boyfriend was ultimately arrested. Um, police said he had; they could see a knife in his pocket, but he claimed the arresting officer used excessive force by shoving him to the ground with his foot and placing his knee on his back.
0: The other case on Monday involved a man in Oklahoma who was shot and killed by police after allegedly threatening them with a hammer uh, when they were responding to a possible domestic violence incident. In both cases, the Supreme Court found circuit courts were wrong to deny qualified immunity to the officers, meaning that they can't be held liable for these potential uh, alleged civil rights violations. So what do we glean from these two decisions about the state of the doctrine?
1: Well, to discuss the cases we have on Jay Schweikert, he's an attorney and a research fellow with the Cato Institute's Project on Criminal Justice, and he's going to be talking us through the background of this doctrine. Uh, Thanks for joining us, Jay.
2: Thank you very much for having me.
1: So I think most people who listen to the show probably have a basic understanding that the qualified immunity doctrine is something that protects police and other law enforcement officers from accusations of of civil rights violations and in particular them being held liable for those um, accused violations. But can you kind of go in depth a little bit more and give us your best definition of what this doctrine actually says in practice?
2: Absolutely. So qualified immunity is a judicial doctrine that was invented by the Supreme Court, which can be invoked as a defense in civil rights cases against public officials. Now, we often talk about this in the context of law enforcement, but it's important to recognize that this doctrine isn't limited to police officers. It applies to any public official who might be sued under our federal civil rights statute. And the the core of the doctrine is the principle that even if a public official has violated someone's constitutional rights, they cannot be held civilly liable unless a court determines that they also violated clearly established law. And that phrase, clearly established law, is really the key to understanding the doctrine, because in practice, it's a very difficult requirement to meet and generally requires that civil rights plaintiffs find a prior judicial decision already issued in their jurisdiction where someone else's rights were violated in nearly the same way as theirs were. In other words, it means that to overcome qualified immunity uh, turns into a hunt and peck for a case in your jurisdiction with sufficiently similar facts. And if you can't find that, you won't be able to get redress for your constitutional injury.
0: We've seen it come up more and more, you know, in the Supreme Court in general conversation, what's behind that surge of qualified immunity coming more to the limelight lately.
2: Well, I think it's it's really two key developments. I think the first is the Uh, increasing recognition of the sort of injustices that qualified immunity regularly permits um, because it routinely excuses even egregious constitutional violations based on the mere happenstance of the fact patterns of prior cases. Uh, That means that it denies justice to victims whose rights have been violated. But especially in the law enforcement context, it severely undermines public trust in our nation's law enforcement officers because it tells the public, accurately, that police are held to a far lower standard of accountability than ordinary citizens. But I think specifically in the context of the Supreme Court, this more sort of general um, policy recognition is also joined with an increasing recognition that the doctrine has at best very shaky legal foundations, because this doctrine is mentioned nowhere in the text of our federal civil rights statute, section 1983. And it is very inconsistent with the way uh, common law good faith defenses worked in the 19th century when the statute was originally passed. It So it was essentially simply invented by the Supreme Court for purely policy reasons. And that has formed the core of the uh, argument that the Supreme Court itself should reconsider this uh, legally misguided doctrine. Uh, unfortunately, what we've seen over the last year and which was reaffirmed um, by these two recent decisions, is that the Supreme Court does not seem willing to reconsider, reconsider fundamental aspects of the doctrine.
1: Yeah, I was just going to follow up on that and, and ask, what is the big takeaway? Is that just it, that there will be no reconsideration of the doctrine with these two Monday rulings from the Supreme Court in City of Tahlequah versus Bond and Rivas Villegas versus Cortes Luna? Is that kind of the big takeaway that really nothing really is going to change?
2: Unfortunately, I think that is the major takeaway, and I see that as confirming what already seemed pretty likely, um, because last term, um, the Supreme Court did issue a notable decision in a case called Taylor versus Riojas, where it, for the first time in over a decade, held that official conduct did violate clearly established law. And so a lot of people interpreted that as sort of reshaping the boundaries of when qualified immunity applies. But the court did not agree to hear on the merits any of the many cert petitions calling for reconsideration of the doctrine itself. And so I think what these two cases confirm is that, uh, you know, not, the court is not going to fundamentally reconsider qualified immunity. And the basic operation of the doctrine is going to remain relatively unchanged because these two decisions are, frankly, very unremarkable decisions. Um the facts aren't especially remarkable. There's nothing novel about the legal analysis. They're just very straightforward applications of the qualified immunity doctrine, as you would expect to see in any lower court decision. Um, Notably, what they both emphasize and confirm is that, again, in most cases, plaintiffs are going to need to find a prior decision with sufficiently similar facts. In both of these cases, uh, the Supreme Court reversed the lower court because they didn't uh, have a factually stringent enough standard in how they were applying clearly established law. So the cases themselves are not remarkable. They don't change anything, but they do confirm that it's going to be mostly business as usual and qualified immunity from the Supreme
1: Court.
0: I'd like to drill down a little bit deeper, though, looking at the courts uh, and justices in particular. um, You know, as you said, these can be very fact specific cases the court, as you said, is kind of sticking, is sticking to its its outlined path here. But um, can, can you kind of uh, take us through where the justices individually stand, seem to stand on this issue or if you can see, a, a, you know, um, a potential line here for for them to to reconsider some of the, the, the bright lines around qualified immunity?
2: Yeah, what's interesting about this area of law is that it absolutely does not admit of anything like the traditional conservative-liberal splits that you sometimes see on certain, uh, especially constitutional issues. Uh, the only justice that has explicitly called for the reconsideration of qualified immunity itself is Justice Thomas, uh, and he's done that several times now over the last, in, in, in uh, separate opinions over the last three years. Uh, and you know his rationale is is the very straightforward legal argument that this is not provided for in the text of this federal civil rights statute, and it's in and it, at least in its current form, it is inconsistent with the common law history against which that statute was passed. And so he has repeatedly invited the Supreme Court to reconsider the doctrine for that reason. Um, Justice Sotomayor has also been critical of the doctrine. Um, In particular, she wrote a a dissent in a case a couple of years ago called Casella versus Hughes, uh, joined by Justice Ginsburg, where she noted that the court has really taken a one-sided approach to qualified immunity that almost always uh, reverses lower courts that grant immunity rather than lower courts that deny immunity. In other words, the Supreme Court's consistent message to lower courts for decades has been be a lot more hesitant. Uh, to ever deny immunity, and that has resulted in a lot of, especially police officers, grant being granted immunity even for egregious misconduct. She has not joined Justice Thomas on any of these points. She has not explicitly said, and therefore, we should reconsider the doctrine entirely. Um, I mean, it, if that ever did get to the court, I would certainly, I think, she would be a likely vote for that. Um, but even she has not taken that additional step. So. Um, And they're the only two members of the current court uh, that have explicitly criticized the doctrine in that sense, Um, which, you know, I think is very discouraging um, because the doctrine is so fundamentally at odds with the basic methodology of textualism and originalism that so many members of the current court explicitly um, adhere to. So it's, I think it's a little confusing to me that, for instance, Justice Gorsuch hasn't joined any of Justice Thomas's opinions on this matter. Um, but right now, there's there are critics of the doctrine on the court, but there's not a core to even agree to hear one of these cases on the merits, much less fundamentally change the doctrine.
1: I think what's interesting about these cases, as you say, is how clearly they kind of lay out the common application of qualified immunity, where the court in both cases kind of had almost identical reasoning, basically saying that the plaintiffs were not able to point to a sufficiently similar precedent that clearly established the police officer's conduct as unconstitutional. And I guess I would just ask to kind of put on the other hat for a second, Jay, and 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 just kind of explain what was this original policy justification for this seemingly difficult test to meet? What What is it that courts found so alluring about establishing qualified immunity in the first place?
2: So the policy rationales that the Supreme Court relied on when it created the modern qualified immunity doctrine, which is the clearly established law standard, uh, there were basically twofold. One was to not overly deter public officials from carrying out their official responsibilities. In other words, they didn't want the risk of liability To chill them in the exercise of their duties. And they also wanted to spare public officials from the time and expense of litigation uh, when there was some ambiguity, I guess, about whether they actually violated someone's rights. Um, Now, I think one thing that's important to recognize is that the Supreme Court was explicitly engaged in policymaking. Uh, In its 1982 decision in Harlow versus Fitzgerald, where it articulated these concerns, it wasn't even pretending to interpret the statute. So, whether or not you agree with those policy concerns, uh, they're not something that Congress actually ever decided on. Um, But even still, I think, at least when you look at the way qualified immunity has been applied today, it doesn't actually capture those particular concerns um, for a few reasons. One, uh, especially in the law enforcement context, Police officers are nearly always indemnified in any civil rights suit brought against them, Uh, even if plaintiffs overcome qualified immunity. It is almost never the officer personally that ends up paying any of that judgment. Um, So the idea that there's a personal risk to officers of serious financial consequences um, is simply untrue given the way that civil litigation currently works today. And this has been rigorously demonstrated by Joanna Schwartz, a UCLA law professor and really the leading empirical scholar of qualified immunity. Um, Similarly, um, Joanna Schwartz has, has debunked this notion that qualified immunity is somehow sparing defendants from the burdens of litigation. Because if that were true, what you would expect to see is qualified immunity filtering out cases at the pleading stage, before discovery happens, because discovery is generally the longest and costliest phase of civil litigation. So if you can get a case tossed out before then, that makes it much less burdensome. But what she found when she analyzed uh, hundreds, thousands of qualified immunity uh, cases in the district courts is that the doctrine almost never, uh, I believe only in 0.6% of cases, actually dismissed a case at the pleading stage. It was much more likely to be granted at the summary judgment stage, after discovery, after depositions, right before trial. And at that point, um, you know, the defendant has already had to undergo the burdens of litigation. Um, so, whatever you think about that concern in the abstract—that it's somehow public officials should be more protected from the burdens of litigation than ordinary citizens—it's just not a concern that's actually being addressed by the current way qualified immunity works.
0: If qualified immunity, though, is pretty much off the table at the Supreme Court level, at least, what's left for police accountability advocates?
2: Well, Congress can change qualified immunity. Um, Qualified immunity is not a constitutional doctrine. It is, in theory, an interpretation of a particular federal statute, Section 1983, which means that Congress has the authority to amend the statute to basically clarify that it means what it currently says. Um, and this, of course, was a central uh, component of the uh, policing reform debate in Congress that we've seen over the last couple of years. Uh, qualified immunity reform was, in many ways, the central component of the the proposed policing reforms, like in the George Floyd Justice and Policing Act. Um, unfortunately, in the current Congress, those efforts really have uh, come to a, a logjam, and, and the key negotiators in the Senate have announced that they're not. They're not going to be able to move forward on policing reform um, right now. So, uh, I think this will continue to remain an issue for Congress to address. Policing reform is not going away, and tragically, we are going to continue to see high-profile instances of police violence that goes unaddressed, which will inflame the public uh, in the way that we saw with George Floyd. Um, in the meantime, though, there are actually uh, states also have a major role to play in addressing qualified immunity reform. Now, states, of course, can't change federal law, so they can't change the way qualified immunity works in federal cases in their state. But what they can do and what many states have already done is create state level civil rights laws that work in parallel to our federal civil rights statute and then to explicitly clarify as a matter of state law that qualified immunity will not be a defense. Um, Colorado was the first state to take this step legislatively uh, back in June of 2020. Uh, New Mexico, um, shortly thereafter, passed similar civil rights legislation. Um, New York City has passed a somewhat more limited civil rights remedy, uh, specifically against police officers for what are effectively Fourth Amendment violations. But in all of these cases, the state is creating a new civil rights law and clarifying that qualified immunity won't be a defense. Um, so I certainly think this is a national problem, and it deserves a national solution. Um, but until Congress gets its act together, uh, states can ensure at least that citizens in their jurisdiction uh, can get remedies for violations of their constitutional rights.
1: Fascinating stuff. Thank you, Jay, uh, so much for for coming on the show today and talking us through this issue. You're very welcome.
0: So that's it for us today. Uh, as always, Jimmy, good talking with you.
1: Likewise, Natalie. uh, We'd like to thank our producer, Stephen Trader, and our executive producer, Amber McKinney. Special guest, Jay Schweikert of the Cato Institute. And music for the show comes from Slender Beats. For more information about all the high court action, go to law360.com slash the term. You can also find us anywhere you listen to podcasts. Just search Law360 and the term. Thanks for listening.